I hope you're all happy and healthy and writing. I know we've got a lot of listeners out there who applied to MFA programs this cycle. So I just wanted to send some positive vibes out to you folks as you start hearing back from programs. I know it can be a bit nerve wracking, so I just wanted to say good luck, but be kind to yourself and try not to stress too much. Remember, the MFA is just one path. All anyone really needs to do to become a better writer is read and write. A lot of this MFA stuff is out of our control, but sitting down and putting words on the page is in your control, and doing so makes you a writer already. So no matter what, keep doing what you love. That's what really matters. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at mfawriterspodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at mfawriters.com. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, I'm with Gabrielle Grace Hogan. Gabrielle is a poet in her third and final year of the New Writers Project MFA from the University of Texas at Austin. She's been published in the Academy of American Poets, Nashville Review, Salt Hill, Cutbank, Foglifter, Peach Mag, and many other places. She served as the poetry editor of Bat City Review and co-editor of the online anthology You Flower, You Feast. Her debut chapbook, Soft Obliteration, is available from Ghost City Press. Today, she is going to read two poems for us. The light appears, it disappears, it passes. I saw a bridge become an arm, gesturing. I saw a foal fold back inside its mother. I saw the warehouse where they store streets after cars pass through them. I saw an art exhibit of four mirrors, gray paint over glass. We arrive at our reflections as the art. Ten dollar admissions fee. I saw a painting full of red, flecked with careful light, Sadak at the mountain tilt, clung to each bone flinch, each stone. I saw the white blades through the window blinds, illuminating the skin in digestive patches. I saw the moon lacquered floor open like a jar. I saw the snake of leather drop flaccid from between the legs. I saw the shirt pull itself off the arms. I saw the absence refuse tautology. It is not always the same. I saw my heart fill with smoke. I saw a woman pull her love from her chest, smoke ropes collapsed in the nose. I saw the light become a burgundy glow behind the road, moving as the slowest pendulum. Time, not like a carousel, but like a hill down which we roll things. I saw a day, and then another, and then another. How is the lake veiled in dew already? If I had asked her to marry me, it would have meant nothing. I am full of too much anger, too much sad careening. Would it be enough to apologize for having no place in the world?
Here, touch everything. Softened butter sun milked of its pageantry, light lapsed at desirable angles, sculptures with eyes like St. Lucy, ridges of oil, mountain range I have desired with desire beyond desire. Small spread of paint beneath your nail. Take it home with you. It is as lonely as you could imagine a thing to be. Sugar Cube Poem A thin rope of web drifts spiderless across the patio. Squirrels begin to chirp sharp trills. I have stepped into the morning like a hungover bear, sweet foam of sweat from a former self hung over my shoulders like a pelt. And it feels good in the way hangovers seek goodness, a haphazard stroke of swamp mouth. The cool air hits me and I think how nice it could be, right here, to cry. It's been so hot this Texas summer, fugued and lavish, that to remember it even can get cold is a hope. I have wakened this morning on R's couch, missing my pants and my contacts like scalloped shells inside my eyelids. I am in the process of remembering mornings can be like this, overcome with a startling nowness, thrown light not an omen of future sun, but light as it will only be in this present moment, curtained by a hunch-postured fence whose string lights cast fat dapples along the garden. It is okay to be here and do this, awake in a friend's apartment, with spit laced along the cheek like a drunk scar, to walk home in the brisk bright, to shower midday and then just sit, the sun loosing the wet from my hair. It is good sometimes, like this, to exist. I am each day closer to falling in love with something within me. The whip of the day moves with such suchness, folding into the warm milk afternoon like a cube of sugar. Thanks, Gabrielle. It was really beautifully written poetry and really beautifully read. So thanks for doing that. Thanks for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me and uh, being so complimentary to my poetry. I'll, I'll always take always take it. Yeah. I mean, us as writers, we're like, it, it's such a vulnerable thing. I, I, I feel like we do. So it, it's nice to hear when, when you know, our, our work touches people. And it really, I, I just really love these poems. I read them each like I don't know, four or five times and just kept finding like more things coming out, more feelings. So oh, I'm really you. excited to to talk about them. And, you know, you've, you've published actually quite a bit at this point. I think you said like 60 pieces or so, plus you have a chat book that you've published. So you've already had some well-deserved success. So congrats on that first off. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's, it's weird to think how many poems I've had published because every once in a while I'm like, I haven't done anything. <laughs> I haven't done anything as a writer. And then I'm like, no, I guess I have. But I feel like that imposter syndrome, everyone has that. Well, I, I think that's important to talk about, right? Because um, a lot of our listeners are just at the very beginning of like figuring out who they are as writers, what they want to be, what they want to do. And many of them haven't been published or have only been published a little bit. And that imposter syndrome is like a real thing. So it's nice to hear someone who's been published quite a bit already saying like, it's okay to feel that it's normal. We all feel it still. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I, I worry that it never goes away. I feel like anyone who doesn't have it a little bit, uh, might be a little untrustworthy, but. Well, I was going to say, I, 
I think that's interesting. I worry that it's it won't go away, but also at the same time, maybe we shouldn't want it to go away. Maybe it needs to be there. Maybe it drives us in some way and it keeps us honest and working hard instead of just, you know, phoning it in. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those complex states of sort of like, kind of like that idea of like, you shouldn't have to be sad to write good stuff, but yeah. you should sort of be able to tap into that sadness at the same time. Um I don't know. Or maybe that's just my excuse for having it to be like, oh, well, you have to have it to be a good writer because uh, I have it. So that means I'm a good writer. I don't know. Who knows what it is? Whatever it takes. Right. Well, I'm a fiction writer who I think like a lot of fiction writers feels a bit intimidated by poets and poetry. But I'm taking my first poetry workshop this semester. So I was hoping to talk through these poems that you wrote a bit talk about your process in writing them and your thought process behind some of the decisions you made, if that sounds good to you. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, and I, I love you saying that as a fiction writer, you get intimidated by poets because as a poet, I'm intimidated <laughs> by fiction writers. Uh, my girlfriend is a fiction writer and it's very funny. We don't, I'm always like, I have no idea how your brain works and it's fascinating to me. Well, if there's anything we've figured out, so far in this interview is that writers are clearly too sensitive. <laughs> like, <Yeah. we're laughs> I think we, I think that, I think we knew that. I don't think we're breaking ground on that one, but true. <laughs> All right. So let's start with sugar cube poem. This poem has like a, it has a rather melancholy feeling to it. I mean, we follow the narrator hungover, waking up on someone's couch, missing her pants and her contacts. But then and this is what I really love about the piece is it doesn't stay in that space. There's this turn towards hope near the end when you write, it is good sometimes like this to exist. I am each day closer to falling in love with something within me. So from a craft standpoint, how important is it to this poem, do you think, to have that turn towards hope as opposed to staying in that melancholy space? Yeah, I think this for this poem in particular, it's very important that it it enters that space of hope. I've noticed in my poems, traditionally, I sort of infuse them with a lot of anger, or a lot of sarcasm, and sort of this humor that comes from this sort of feeling of, I'm trying to be funny because I'm so upset about something. And I just kind of wanted to write a poem where I wasn't feeling that way. And I do think those poems that I've written, I'm not ashamed of them or upset by them. You know, I think those are really important emotions to write about. But I think from a craft standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint of what was going on in my life at the time is I just wanted to write something that I wanted to write something that was, if not happy, at least hopeful that that happiness could be achieved. And just wanted to, I, I feel like not to pull the you know, the times we live in card, but truly from a, both a personal standpoint and from just like a standpoint of the world is I just kind of wanted to write something that didn't make me feel like everything was falling apart. I feel like happy poems and hopeful poems don't get written a lot. Because I think there's this idea, like we just said, that you have to be sad or angry um, to write something good. You know, happy endings are thought of as cliched or trite and they can be but I don't think that's because of the emotion I think that's bad writing I think an emotion like happiness joy I mean Ross Gay's book of delights proves that it's not an emotion that we have to ignore in order to be good writers so I wanted to 
lean into that idea. And basically, I just wanted to write, I was feeling happy. And as someone with depression, it's hard to feel that sometimes. So I wanted to write a poem that reflected that. So, Well, I thought one thing that this poem captured really well was like how complicated emotion is. Like it's not always that simple, like I am sad or I am happy, right? There's this interesting thing happening in this poem where like, you know, you're finding optimism in a hangover, which is like supposed <laughs> to be the most unoptimistic state we can be in pretty much. <laughs> but like it made me think about how feeling bad can sometimes make you feel good. How feeling sick and hungover actually forces you to be present because you feel too awful to think about the past <laughs> and the future and all these other things that are happening. So you're just in the moment and can in a way see things more clearly. I thought that was captured nicely in this poem. Thank you. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure how to write it initially. Cause I was like, I'm writing about a hangover, but it sounds too happy to be about a hangover. But I think you put it in a way that, uh, sounds a lot smarter than maybe I would have put it, but sounds ac- as accurate as I wanted to write from this place of like, you know, hangovers suck and you feel sick and gross, but so- not all- not all the time, I suppose. But sometimes it reflects like, oh, wow, I had a really good time the night before. And this communal living between happiness and sadness of, you know, I feel gross now, but I felt it comes from feeling great, just like how you can go through something that's really painful and that sucks. And, but on the other side of that can be this joy. Um, And I don't like to be the person who's like, if something bad happens to be like, Oh, well that just means that something good's going to come out of it because I, you know, I feel like that's too optimistic, but I think it can be true. You know, we're never stagnant in one emotion. So why should poetry only write about one thing if we as people are, swirling through different emotions, you know? Yeah, no, I that makes total sense to me. And I think what's interesting is what you're talking about, which is how to in, like encapsulate that in a piece of writing, like from a craft standpoint, thinking about how do I toe this line where I'm not becoming like cheesy or sentimental, but like trying to really show the complication that can occur in this emotion and how it can be two things at once. And you can go back and forth and it can be swirling like, like our, our brains often are. Um, And you mentioned that for this poem, you actually wanted to write a happy poem. So I was curious about that. Like if you think about going into a poem, like, Hey, I want this to have hopefulness in it, in it, or if that's something that shows up more organically throughout the process of writing the poem. Yeah, I think for this poem specifically, I did want it to be hopeful and be happy. Um, Because like I said, I feel like a lot of my poetry leans against that feeling. And most of the time, and this kind of leads into uh, more of an overall craft question, I suppose. Um, Most of the time when I write, I'm not going into a poem with the idea of this is what the poem's going to be about. This is the emotion it's going to tap into. And I'm going to accomplish that. Usually I'm just writing images that I like and just sort of seeing what spills from that cup as I'm writing. And then, you know, not to be that cheesy writer that's like the poem writes itself. I'm just the vessel. But it's kind of true is I'm just writing like images that I really like. And then it unfolds in such a way as, oh, this could mean this and lead into that. This was a poem, though, that was different for me, not just because it's 
sort of more hopeful and joyful, but also I went into the poem with the decision to write it that way, um, which made it a little bit more difficult to write because, like you said, the poem itself kind of toes that line between uh, joy and defeat. And I think that's because I'm still learning how to toe that line. Um, but yeah, this poem's different for me in that process way too, in that I wanted to write about this specific moment and why it made me happy, which I think can be, I don't know, for certain poets, probably, probably depends on the person. But for me, I find that difficult. And I think that's why I admire fiction writers so much, um, is this idea that fiction, and like, this is assuming a lot about fiction writers, and I could be totally wrong, but going into something knowing that like, this scene is going to happen, this is what's going to be said, this is what's going to be done. And kind of having that outline going into it, I really admire because I just don't think my brain works that way. Um, so this poem was kind of a challenge for me in planning ahead. Yeah, it's so interesting. And this is one of the reasons why I love having these conversations, because like I'll I'll do, um, you know, one interview where a writer will say, let's describe their process. And then I'll do another interview and it'll be the exact opposite process. And it's just like so clearly different for each person. Um but I still think like hearing about the different ways that it works for different people is really useful because sometimes I hear something and it clicks for me. I know fiction writers who do what you just described, which is outline the entire thing before they start. I don't do that. I, I, I usually have like, like you were describing an image or a scene or just an idea, maybe even one sentence that I start writing. And then I'm just like figuring it out from there. It's just like, it's the, the tracks are being slowly laid out in front of the thing as I'm writing it. And I have no, often have no idea what the thing's going to look like when I start, um, which is completely different from how other people write fiction. And it's, it's so interesting. So it's interesting to hear you saying, and, and this is another thing I think I should point out. It's not like one writer does it this way and another writer does it this way. Sometimes it's poem to poem or story to story. Cause sometimes I have a, a pretty good idea what the whole story will look like before I start. And sometimes I have no idea. And you're saying sometimes you start with just an image and you figure out what it means later. Sometimes in the case of this poem, you have an idea of what it's going to be. And then you start writing. I think my poetry benefits from that angle as well of not approaching every single poem the same way. Um, and I think that's something, you know, not to jump ahead to a conversation about the MFA, but I think the MFA, my experience has helped me do that in so far as collaborating with other poets and being in workshops with other poets and hearing how they do their process makes me really curious to go like, oh, that's really interesting. I'm just going to steal that for a second and see what comes of it. Because I think, you know, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot. So not, I'll try not to go on a rant about it, but sort of the, the unfortunate reality that publishing and, you know, being on social media as a poet can sometimes be very draining and turns your work into capital and turns it into product. And I know something I've been feeling a lot recently is this sort of frustration that like, I don't want to be a brand. That's not why I came to poetry is to like, I mean, I do want to publish books. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. Publishers, if you're listening, I would love to publish <laughs> a book, but just this, I don't want it to just be for the sake of product. And I feel like, I, I want to capture again for myself what I love about poetry, which is playfulness and how 
I get to do different things in every single poem and I get to approach it differently. Like, ooh, what if I wrote form first instead of content? What if I wrote a sonnet? What if um, I wrote it backwards or something like that? Because I feel like the point of art should be to be playful and to enjoy it. You know, I feel like we get, I think people get very um, self-righteous sometimes about art in a way that is like, oh, this is, you have to do it this way. And art has to do this and art has to be this way. And I'm like, I think that's counterintuitive to the whole point of art. Art is just an expression of emotion, of play, of just trying to communicate with the world outside of what we expect our communication to be. You know, I don't want to just like make something, wrap it up really pretty and put it on the conveyor belt and have it go down. Like I want it to feel like I'm just having fun. And if that turns into something like a book, that's really great. And I don't think that makes my work any less important or any less capable of change Um, But I feel like from a personal standpoint, if I don't write it that way, I just won't want to write anymore. And that leads in pretty well to a conversation I want to have about the second poem you read, The Light Appears, It Disappears, It Passes. To me, this poem is at least partially about the passage of time. And I found it really interesting the way you play with time in the piece. So the poem starts in the past tense. I saw, I saw, I saw all these images, right? And then you bring it into the future, into the now when you write, I saw a day and then another and then another. How is the lake veiled in dew already? But still the narrator drifts into the past in the next line. If I had asked her to marry me, it would have meant nothing. I am I am full of too much anger, too much sad careening. So is time something that you were intentionally trying to play with in this piece? Yeah, I think this poem was written differently than Sugar Cube poem in the sense of it kind of followed that same process where I just started writing and saw what happened. If I remember correctly, I think I had a bit of writer's block at this time. So I was like, how can I write a whole poem effectively? And I just was like, I'm just going to start every line with I saw and describe an image and see what happens. And as it was unfolding, I was noticing that the images were very much so placed in this specter of time or transformation as it relates to time. So sort of this, like the line, I saw the warehouse where they store streets after cars pass through them is just this existential idea of like, oh, wow, things exist when we're not there. You know, these streets don't go away just because I drove past them. Just like, you know, when I stop texting my friend, my friend's not on pause, they have a whole life. And kind of how you'll never be able to connect to everything and be aware of everything at every single moment in your life because everything is moving around and how that can be really beautiful, but can also be really sad, especially as it goes into those lines talking about, you know, I saw the skin, I saw the floor. Um, I saw the shirt. Uh, Cause that's supposed to describe this feeling of like, I'm placed in this moment with a lover and you can tell by the way it's being described that the lover is gone now. But the the speaker keeps placing themselves in these specific moments in time. And it's, I think it's, I'm fascinated by the structure of memory and the structure of how memory betrays us and, you know, taunts us. 
and sort of how we can be so far removed from an event, but the event is still very present with us. And like the line, time, not like a carousel, but like a hill down which we roll things is it doesn't feel like this like easy spinning movement where everything is going to repeat itself. It's like we throw something down a hill and we just watch it fade into the distance. And so, I don't know, I was just really fascinated by these ideas of how trying to capture a moment is sort of futile. And even sitting in this museum and seeing all of these paintings that capture a moment in a way, but it really can't. It's just a it's just the idea of capturing something, but truly moments are not able to be caught. You know, they they exist and then they pass. Um, and us holding on to them is not, you know, the memory is not the same as the thing, but I think we fool ourselves into that a lot of times. Yeah. I think that that idea of distance really comes through here. That was one thing that I wrote down, like that this poem really is playing with distance, constantly moving in closer in time and closer to the reader, even becoming quite intimate by the end of it when it's as if the narrator is talking directly to us, the reader, you write here, touch everything and small spread of paint beneath your nail, take it home with you. It is as lonely as you could imagine a thing to be. So it becomes really intimate by the end. And it made me wonder about your process in writing this piece. And if you ever put constraints on your writing, like I'm going to start in past tense at a distance and then end in present tense, second person. Like, do you ever put constraints like that on your poetry and then see what happens? Yeah, sometimes. Um, Often when I am in a moment where I really want to write something, but nothing is happening, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to write, I'm just going to give myself an arbitrary rule and follow it until I write a draft of something. And then I'm allowed to go outside the constraints of that rule once I have a draft written, but just in in the making of the poem. So like I said, for this one, I was like, I'm just going to write, I saw, and then an image a bunch of times. And then you know, as the poem unravels and I'm writing these images, I'm seeing the direction that the images are taking me, um, which inevitably always comes to some sort of breakup poem or love poem or just um, fascination with that particular emotion. And for me, like noticing that I was writing, I saw, I saw, I saw is seeing this past tense and seeing all these images of like, okay, I'm I'm not seeing these images. I saw these images. So what does that make for the rest of the poem? This idea of like these flashing moments. And I don't normally put constraints on my poems. I don't think, like I said, I typically just try to write images and see what happens. Um, But once in a while, I like to do that as a way of just seeing like, okay, well, what will happen if I just make up this dumb rule and I have to follow it until a draft is written? And I think I write some of my most interesting things when I do that. Cause you know, you have to, you have to understand convention in order to break it. So you have to make up a rule and follow it before you can break the rule. Yeah. It's interesting that like you started off just writing images in this piece and then you noticed, Oh, I'm writing. It's all past tense. I saw, I saw, I saw. And then there's this turn where it, it leaves the past tense and it becomes more in the present. So it's interesting that like, you notice that pattern happening and instead of staying with it, you're like, okay, how can I turn, right? How can I surprise the reader? Cause it was, it is like a surprising turn when it's like, Oh, we're leaving and we're moving in and we're getting closer. And that really encapsulates that idea. Those memories, how they can feel so close 
and so far away at the same time and it's compressing and moving. Yeah. And like that idea of the turn in the poem, the turn in a poem is always fascinating to me, both as a writer and as a reader of other people's poetry. But obviously you can't just have a bunch of turns and a bunch of plot twists in something because then it just doesn't make any sense. You have to create the logic and then defy the logic. Um, so I think that construction is really fascinating to me. What is the rule? You know, what is the logic of this poem? How does the world of this poem operate? And creating that structure and then being like, okay, now that I understand how it works, I'm going to break it in half. In writing poems, I love that. And I also love when I read that in poems or in fiction or in nonfiction or in anything. And I, I think that's what's really fun about it. It's sort of sort of like that idea of like, oh, I'm building the Legos as the box tells me to. But then once I have like the, the skeleton of the Lego, then I'm just going to like go buck wild. And I don't know why I haven't played with Legos since I was a kid, but just <laughs> sort of like, I'm going to follow what the box says until I decide I don't want to anymore. Hey, I mean, Legos were a formative experience for a lot of us. They're, it's in there. <laughs> Even if we haven't thought about Legos in years. <laughs> that You're like, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's super interesting. So it's almost like instead of putting a constraint on the poem before you started, it was like you, you just started writing and then you noticed, oh, there's this form, there's this constraint that's happening organically. Now, how mm -hmm. can I defy it? Um, and you talked about how this poem is clearly about a relationship and the end of a relationship and the memory of that relationship, which was really beautifully captured, I thought, as well. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit because you told me before the inter interview that you see a debilitating lack of lesbian narratives, contemporary or otherwise, and you want to fill that gap as a writer. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that a bit and if that's something you were thinking about or exploring in this piece. Yeah, I think I think for me, and not every uh, not every queer or marginalized person thinks this way, but I know for me... I think of it as everything I write is a lesbian narrative because I am the one who's writing it. Um, so every time I write a love poem or a breakup poem, even if I'm not very specific that it's lesbian, it is because I'm the one who wrote it. And that's what's really important to me is not just writing specifically like here's a lesbian story, but like, oh, I'm a writer who's writing this as a lesbian. And I just, I feel like there's a huge lack of like attention paid to lesbian writing and lesbian writers, uh, which is really unfortunate. And I mean, I don't know why that is. I feel like it's probably a mixture of homophobia and misogyny, which is a great, you know, a fun little cocktail. But I, I know for me, that's something that I have been wanting to contribute to like the poetic and writing landscape is just, you know, this is something that's so important to me is this identity of myself. And I don't see it represented a lot. There's a lot of queer narratives that I see that are really uplifting to me to get to see queerness in any way. Um, but as a lesbian, I would love to see more that are very specific to my experience. I don't know, like, like there's, there's, there are lesbian writers out there. It's not like I'm the first, but I just, don't, I feel like their work doesn't get discussed as much as it should. Like, you know, there's Eileen Miles, who everyone knows and who is fantastic. But then there's also like Marilyn Hacker, uh, Audre Lorde. And like, there's, 
there's these writers that everyone knows, but it's like such a small volume. You know, I s- love reading queer narratives from any particular um, identity. I think queerness is beautiful and important. Um, but as a lesbian woman, you know, that's my, you know, I guess that's my letter, quote unquote, you know, that's my claim to queerness. And I feel like there's not enough, not enough poetry that is specifically lesbian, no, and specifically, like, this is what it is as a woman to write a love poem to another woman. Or even not just that, but just, like, I am a lesbian writer, and so I'm just, you know, even Sugar Cube poem is a lesbian poem because I'm the one who wrote it. Um, and I feel like there's this queerness inherent to the poem, even without, without like, rainbows or admission of sexuality, is there's this queerness of, like, uh, find, trying to find a space of happiness, a place of hope, a place of belonging. And I know what the poem is about on a personal level. I know how it relates to my queerness, even if other people don't. But I feel like that's important too, is even if I'm not directly saying this poem is lesbian, the fact that I have written it and I have a voice is what's important. And I do think that that comes through with the poem. And so I'm curious, we're going to talk about the MFA program here in a bit, but I'm just going to go ahead and jump ahead and because I'm curious if, if you've been able to find a community in the program of other queer writers that you feel like you're in conversation with and that you have like a community with and you feel like you can talk about these things with. Yeah, so that was something when I was applying to MFA programs that I was really worried about. You know, I had this idea in my head that like, it's very possible I will be like the only queer person, the only woman or one of like a handful um, and sort of braced myself for that possible reality. And I could not have been more wrong, more happily wrong coming to Texas. Not I'm lucky enough that, that I'm in the New Writers Project, but Austin, you know, also has the Missioner Center and both programs interact a lot with one another. So then it's like twice as many people in a cohort or twice as many people um, that you get to have interactions with. And so many, there's so many great queer writers in the program. And then even if folks aren't queer, as I've never met a single person who is, you know, homophobic or who is against it. And I feel like I've gotten to have this really awesome community specifically of other queer writers who, even if they don't come from the exact same identity, you know, who may not be lesbians, but are queer in their own ways is getting to, to feed off of one another as writers um, and as queer writers and getting to have that relationship to one another. I had a, I had a workshop this past year that every single person in the workshop was queer And even if we, again, even if we weren't all writing inherently about that identity, there's this relief and this comfort of like, oh, I can bring like the gayest poem ever written to this workshop and everyone's going to get it and not just get it, but everyone's going to be, you know, understanding and going to be helpful. Um, Because I think that was my worry coming to the MFA was, you know, my writing is really gay. And even if, you know, and again, even if it's not directly, like everything I write indirectly has something to do with this, with a queer narrative. And so I was like, I'm really nervous that I'll have to defend that part of myself. And I won't get to just have the poem booked at as a poem. So being in this program is great because 
you know, not everyone is queer, but everyone is so welcoming to queerness. And just in general, it's a it's a really great program to be a part of because I feel like everyone is so supportive of one another here. And I've heard of MFAs where that is very much so not the case. Um, so I feel very lucky. Just the idea of being in a workshop with all queer people to say that that's a difficult space to find would be an incredible understatement, I imagine. So the the fact that that's even available to you at the new writers project at UT Austin is, is amazing. Oh yeah. And it, it wasn't even intentional. It wasn't like, Oh, poetry workshop for queer poetry. It's just, it just happened to be that the, the roster for that class is everyone identified that way. And it was, really special to be in that workshop because of that sort of accidental, sort of an accidental blessing in that way. And just that accessibility to it where we don't have to, like, it doesn't have to be about our queerness, but we still all come together as queer writers. Um, And I think it's really important to have that multifaceted access to identity and just that comfort to be around each other, even if we're not expressing this very specific part of ourselves, but just knowing that we can and that we don't have to tiptoe over any landmines to get to it. Um, And that's, that's a blessing. And I don't know if I'm ever going to be in a workshop like that again, especially because my MFA is ending, but also who knows, I don't know if I'll be in a space like that again, um, but I'm really grateful for it. Well, yeah, so you're in your final semester in the New Writers Project from the University of Texas at Austin, which is the sister program of the Michener Center for Writers. You're originally from St. Louis. Just want to recognize you as a fellow Missourian while we're on here. Yes, thank you. (laughs) We've (laughs) talked a bit about how much you've already published, but I'm curious what made you want to pursue an MFA? What did you hope you would get out of the program that you weren't already getting from writing and publishing? So... I am 24, so I came to my program directly out of undergrad. So I think I think part of it came from I went to undergrad at uh, Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois, and I think a big reason I wanted to go to the MFA was because, and I'm not going to knock Peoria, Illinois, um, but I just don't think it was my place, and I think I still really felt that there was something. I wanted, like, I wanted to be somewhere and write and feel that closeness to the city that I lived in. And so I was like, oh, an MFA would be a great opportunity to, you know, continue my schooling and not just that, but go somewhere and experience a new city. Um, I think part of it, to be blunt, is that I was really afraid of being in the quote unquote real world of employment. And so I was like, oh, I'll go to grad school. But it's more than that. It's I really wanted to have that community of writers and people who didn't just write, but for whom writing was like the only thing they wanted to do. And, you know, people who were really well read and were writing a lot and just people whose minds operated in similar ways to mine is, you know, the the biggest reason I wanted to go to the MFA was community, which is why having to go during the COVID-19 pandemic has been less than desirable. But, you know, I wanted that community. And I also wanted to sort of just learn more about writing. Because, you know, when I entered the program, I was what, 22? Um, Just like a tiny baby, really. 
um, or 21 maybe even, and I really knew nothing about anything. And I wanted to have a better understanding of like, how does publishing work? How does writing work? You know, who am I supposed to be reading? Like, who can I be reading? And so I just was like, the MFA is this really great opportunity. I didn't look at it as like, oh, I'll get an MFA and then people will take me seriously. Uh, Not that other people do that, but I I viewed it more as like, I just want to understand this world that I want to be in better. Um, And I want to make friends in that world. And yeah, and I feel like I've done all of that, which is really awesome. Well, it's a, the New Writers Project, it's a, it's a three-year fully funded program. The Michener program is as well. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the similarities and differences between the two programs. So the New Writers Project is through the English department at the university, uh, whereas the Michener Center is through the Michener Center specifically. So they're technically two different departments. The only difference is, at least that I am able to notice as a student, is the New Writers Project has access to teaching. So the way the New Writers Project works is we work as teaching assistants for discussion sections for our first for our first two full years. We are working in like an American literature or Brit lit course as a teaching assistant. So, you know, going to lectures and then teaching little discussion sections and grading and stuff like that. Um, and then our fall semester of our final year, we teach a workshop in our genre. So I taught an introduction to poetry workshop for undergrads where I got to make my own syllabus. I got to um, conduct the classes however I wanted. And then this final semester is a fellowship semester, so no teaching. Um, whereas the Missioner Center is just a fellowship. So they there's no teaching involved or anything like that. It's just writing. And I know when I was applying to MFAs, I approached my professors and was basically like, what is, what is, what do I have to do? Uh, What is sort of like, no matter where I apply, I have to have this. And they said, well, they said one, it should be fully funded. And I was like, yeah, no, yeah, I got no money to go to grad school. So I would love to have a fully funded program. But they're also like, you should teach because even if you personally don't want to be a teacher, that gives you such an understanding of things just on the other side and gives you sort of a resume booster and stuff like that. And just, you know, gives you a skill that you wouldn't obtain otherwise. So that was important to me was to find a program that I could teach. So that's why I I applied to New Writers Project and over Missioner. But I know for other people, they don't want to teach. They just want the fellowship and that's totally valid. I think it all depends on your personal journey. Um, But that's really the only difference that has been noticeable because we all take the same exact classes. We all have access to the same classes, the same professors. I think the only class difference is I know the Missioner Center gets like a first year seminar. That's like all the first years in the Missioner program take a class that's all together. Um, And New Writers Project is not in that. And then New Writers Project has teaching pedagogy to, you know, teach us how to be teachers. But other than that, like, I hardly even notice a difference between who's Missioner and who's New Writers Project. Um, there's no sense of competition. There's no sense of, oh, I'm Missioner, so I'm better than you, or anything like that, which is really a relief because that was another thing I was worried about coming into this was, oh, what's the relationship between the two programs? You know, do they interact at all? Do they hate each other? And at least in my experience, like, it's like, not to be so cheesy, but it's just one big family. 
the two programs come together and yeah, like my, like I said, my girlfriend is a fiction writer and she's in the Missioner Project, the Missioner Project, the Missioner Center, and I'm in the New Writers Project. So, and it's not like a Romeo and Juliet sort of like, oh, how dare you thing. Um, a lot of my really good friends are in the Missioner Center or a lot of them are in New Writers Project. So the, those are the technical differences of like the teaching and the certain classes, but really education wise, we're all, we all have access to the exact same thing, which is really, really nice. And when you're teaching, what's the teaching load? Is it just like one section each semester? Yeah. So it's, so the first two years when I'm, when, as the TA does the discussion section is you get two discussion sections for one class. So, um, teaching load really depends on the professor who's teaching the lecture. Um, I had semesters where I, had to grade like three huge exams and like a weekly test. Um, and then there were others where it was just like, there was just like one paper at the end of the year and you had to do attendance. And so the workload kind of changed depending on the professor. Um, but advice that I have been given is essentially, you know, you're not here to be a teacher. You're here to be a student. So don't slack off on your duties but remember to put your writing first. And I think that was something that took me a second to sort of learn with my schedule was, you know, how am I, how do I stay a good teaching assistant, but at the same time, remember that I'm here to be a student. And that can be a little bit difficult. I think that varies from person to person of the ease with which you can do that. Um, like I know, I know some people who, you know, for them, it was no problem because they had a lot of teaching experience in their past before they came to the MFA. So they were like, I got it. I know how to do it. I had zero teaching experience. So, you know, and I'm coming in age 22, teaching 21 year olds about American lit and thinking, how do I have authority when I have friends who are your age? Like how I just graduated, I could have been in this class with you. So I think for me, the workload was hard to sort of grasp, but it's easy it's not so terrible once you learn how to do it, but there is a bit of a learning curve to figure out like, how do I give myself enough time for my own studies, but also don't slack off on this. And then you also worked as poetry editor at Bat City Review, which is published through the university. How was that experience? And did you receive funding for that work? Did that like replace some of your teaching load? Yeah. So it didn't replace any of my teaching load. Uh, the way that Bat City worked is my first semester here it's offered so it's offered as a class so I took it my first semester here where I was an associate editor so I which essentially meant I was a student in the class and I read for submittable I you know approved poems sent them to the board in class we would have conversations um about the poems and about the fiction and the nonfiction. And basically, you know, everyone's saying, you know, I think this piece is really strong, or I don't think this piece is as strong. And it was really nice, because even though I was an associate editor my first semester, I was still given that credibility and that trust to sort of know what I was talking about. And the poetry editor gets the final say still, but the associate editors have a lot of room to argue for and against pieces. And then as poetry editor, I essentially just took the class again, but as poetry editor. Yeah, so it, it didn't take away any of my teaching load, 
Uh, it was essentially just another commitment that I had in addition to my teaching load, which again proves how you need to be very careful about your schedule and about organization. But that's true of anywhere and of anything. Um, but I do think it was a huge benefit to my time. And I, I really loved being a part of it and getting to see what it's like to work for a literary magazine on that side. Because I worked for my high school and my undergrad's literary magazines too, but neither of them were national publications. So this was my first time being on like the other side of submittable and being like, okay, well, how does a magazine that like Bat City work? And so I think it was a really invaluable experience also as a writer to get to see that because I think it it made me, it made it a lot easier to handle rejection, if that makes sense, because I would recognize like, okay, I know that on the other side, it's very possible that there are like 10 people rooting for my poem, but one person doesn't. Um, and maybe they have the authority, so they just don't publish it. Or something more simple, like they do really like this poem, but it just genuinely doesn't fit in the issue. Because when I would get that rejection before, I'd be like, this is a lie. This is just you being nice. But sometimes that is very true. So I think it made me a better writer, at least in terms of a writer who submits things, getting to understand the intricacies of how a magazine works. And I I'm really hoping to get into publishing as a career after the MFA. So it was also a really valuable experience to see on a smaller scale, like how does editing work? How does design work? How does copy work? Yeah, no, I, I think it was it was a really awesome experience that I'm happy I got to be a part of. Yeah, in my program, we do a similar thing. So New Letters Magazine is published through UMKC. And so we also have like what they call a practicum, which is like a class you sign up for. And through that class, you are, are reading the work that is submitted and, and having discussions on what should be published. I couldn't recommend it enough. If you're if you end up any listeners out there, if you end up in a program that has a literary magazine, take advantage of that experience, because it really is eye opening from a, not only if you want to go into publishing, like you mentioned, but from a writing perspective as a writer to get that view from the other side was really eye-opening for me. It sounds like it was for you. So you mentioned that the new writers project students and the Michener students are essentially taking the same classes. So it's not like there are any classes that are closed off to you as part of your program. You can take any of these classes. It sounds like you have access to all the same faculty members, which leads me to another question. You know, there's two programs at UT and they share the same faculty. So it seems like those faculty members might be pretty busy having that many students. So have you found that the faculty is pretty available and engaged with your work? Yeah, I think another great thing about my MFA experience is I think the the professors are so welcoming and so genuinely wanting to help all of us. Um, You know, the I have classes with Lisa. I've had quite a few classes with Lisa Olstein and she's truly amazing. I believe she's on sabbatical right now because she got a Guggenheim. Um, but she's still my, myself and Rob Colgate, who's also a poet in the program. We've had uh breakfast with her a couple times just to tell her, you know, what we've been up to, what we've been doing. And so even when she like quote unquote, isn't required to meet with us, she's still has taken an interest in talking to us and, you know, she could very easily just ignore everything about the MFA, but she 
genuinely has an interest in us as writers. Um, and Elizabeth McCracken is amazing as well. She's fiction, so I don't get to work with her a lot, but in, she taught my, uh, pedagogy class that I took this past semester and she's so inviting and so funny and so honest in all the ways that we as students want honesty. Yeah. And then Joanna Klink is, like an angel sent from heaven. Everyone in the program like fawns over Joanna Klink. Um, not only is her poetry tremendous, but as a professor, she just cares so, so deeply about poetry and so, so deeply about the students. And you know, she's genuine in everything she says. I just had um, back in December before I flew to St. Louis for the holidays, um, I just got coffee with her and she'll make you feel like you're the best writer in the whole world. Uh, and she means it. She's not, you know, beating around the bush. She's not making stuff up to make you feel better about yourself. Like what she says about your writing, she means. And yeah, it's just every, pretty much every professor I've encountered at UT and in the program has been so genuine and so just so genuinely wanting us to become better writers and better people. And, you know, I know people who've been in other MFA programs where it's kind of not the case, where it's kind of professors are teaching as an excuse to like, okay, I'll teach this class so that I can write my own little book and not really caring too much about the students themselves. But I, I really feel that every professor who I've had is giving their 110% to all of us, which is how I think it should be, but maybe isn't always. And so it's just, it's so nice to feel cared for as both a writer and a person. Well, that's great. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you're in your final semester. So getting ready to finish up in the MFA program, which I imagine is exciting and intimidating at the same time. But, uh, you know, you've, you've already published your debut chapbook, Soft Obliteration. It's available at Ghost City Press. Everyone who's listening should go buy a copy right now. But you're nearing the end of this MFA journey, and I'm curious, you mentioned earlier something about maybe going into publishing. I'm curious if you've thought about next steps and like what you might want to do after the MFA program. Yeah, I mean, the short answer is just me screaming. But, <laughs> but the long answer is, you know, I ideally want to go into publishing. I'm, you know, keeping, keeping my eye out on any entry-level publishing jobs anywhere, Ideally, I would love to stay in Austin, Texas, um, just because I really love this city and I have a huge community here of people that I really love, uh, but I'm not opposed to going elsewhere. I know uh, something to keep in mind for anyone who might be applying to this program as well is uh, the University of Texas Press is based at UT and they have a publishing fellowship. I don't know if you have to have an MFA to be a part of it. I think you can just have a an undergrad degree and be able to do it. Um, but it's a publishing fellowship that lasts a whole calendar year. And you are, you know, involved in the marketing and the design and the editorial departments for the books that come through that year. And it sounds like a really awesome opportunity. And that's something that I am applying for and hopefully will receive. But yeah, I know. And then there's uh, Milkweed in Minneapolis has a similar publishing fellowship. And yeah, just gonna hopefully applying to any of those sort of editorial positions and hoping to get them. I'm also applying to plenty of residencies for the summer. And yeah, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm I'm trying to worry enough about my future, but not too much, if that makes sense. 
um, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to kind of let this, this graduation from the MFA be an opportunity for a wide range of just anything to happen and not be so clinical about, okay, now I have to do this next thing. I have to go like get a PhD or I have to do this. Cause like I said earlier, I feel like that can be the death of writing sometimes or just the death of joy in general is trying so hard to have such a specific way of doing things in a specific path. Well, you have some great experiences under your belt. Your poetry is really beautiful. If you can't get a job, then what hope do the rest of us have? <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind of you to say. Well, um, before we go, the last question I want to ask, I ask it of every guest that comes on. What is one thing that you think the program does really well? And what is one thing that you think they could improve on? I think one thing the program does well is not making it a competition between its between itself and its sister program or and just not making a competition in general and i don't know how much of that is the program's doing and how much of that is just luck of the draw with who you get individually coming to the program but i think something great about this program is that everyone is so so genuinely supportive of one another no one is trying to undermine anyone or shit talk anyone like every single person genuinely supports every single other person. And, you know, of course people are closer friends with certain people than others. There's some people in the program who I hardly talk to. Um, and then some who are my best friends, but there's no ill will towards anyone. So I think that's something this program does great is when they say that it's a community, they mean it. Um, and then something I think they could work on, you know, the missioner program, the missioner center is great. New writers project is great. Um, and I think the education that we all get is equal, but there is a gap in funding in terms of the Missioner Center students get, I don't, I don't know exact numbers, but I know they get much more money in their stipend than the New Writers Project does. And I know that that's, there's a complexity to that and, you know, has something to do with the Missioner Center uh, being funded different from a different source than the New Writers Project. And I don't blame anyone um, in particular, but I think that is something that is a little frustrating being an essentially equal programs, uh, but not getting paid as much. Cause you know, grad school, we're all just trying to live off that grad school stipend. And I think more money would be always be good. <laughs> I think it's always a good idea to push our institutions to give grad students more money, especially grad students in the arts. And I'm sure, like you said, it's probably, it's, I'm almost sure it's not an issue with the program itself. It's yeah. probably a university issue, For sure. state state funding issue, um, because that Michener program is privately funded and the new writers program is through the state university. So it's very intricate. It's very bureaucratic. But every chance we get to push <laughs> the higher ups to give us more money, I think we should do it. So that was a great answer. And you had lots of great answers. I really loved chatting with you. I really loved hearing your poetry and hearing about your process. So thanks so much for stopping by and chatting with me. Yeah, I am super happy that you had me. I've been like low-key wanting to be on this podcast for a while, but was like, I don't know who I need to talk to. So I'm glad. Um, yeah, thank you for a really great conversation and great questions. Um, yeah, no, I'm really happy that I got to be on here. Thank you for making me feel comfortable and really grateful for it. 